Assassins, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by John Weidman, opened December 18th, 1990 at Playwrights Horizons. A journey through the dark side of the American dream, this exploration of the lives of nine men and women who either killed or tried to kill one of the presidents of the United States is an unnerving and at times funny look at some of the most shocking moments in US history. Suffering an initial short run and mixed reviews, the production has gone on to worldwide acclaim as one of the most performed of the Sondheim canon. Free country means you don't have to sit. That's it. And put up with the shit. Everybody's got the right to some sun to shine. With us today is New York-based dramaturg and writer Annika Chapin, currently the artistic associate and resident dramaturg at Goodspeed Musicals. With Michael Fling, she is the creator and host of the musical-focused podcast In the Spotlight, and she has written pieces specifically about assassins for the Sondheim Review and New York Magazine. Jermaine Hill, whose credits include music directing The Color Purple at Drury Lane Theater, The Music Man at the Goodman Theater, Madagascar at Chicago Shakespeare, as well as Memphis and Sophisticated Ladies at Porchlight Music Theater, among others, in addition to his work as an actor on stage and television, as well as teaching at Columbia College, Chicago. And Jeff Award-winning actor and on-camera acting coach, Steph Tovar, whose work on film, television, and stage includes appearances from Los Angeles to Off-Broadway in productions of A Twist of Water, The Music Man, On an Average Day, The Last Five Years, as well as leading roles in the Sondheim musicals Sunday in the Park with George, as well as as Leon Choldosh in Assassins. Welcome everyone to the roundtable to talk about a show that I normally do, I like to keep these, these shows as evergreens and don't try to set the time, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that today is November 7th and that uh, Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris have uh, just been announced as our future president and vice president. So it's yeah. incredibly apropos that we're having this conversation. Yay, let's do yeah. a little dance. <laughs> I'd like to begin these discussions with uh, where this particular show first came into our lives, whether it was something that we performed in, wrote in, saw, listened to. For me, it was, uh, I listened to the, uh, the, the Off-Broadway CD first, and, and I, I think probably uh, found it somewhat unsatisfying in, in its unclarity, that I couldn't get a picture of what the show was. And uh, not long after that, then saw my first production, which happened to be in 1996, with uh, our guest, Steph Tovar, in the cast, a production uh, that was done at a, a company here near Chicago called the Apple Tree Theater, directed by Gary Griffin. And it became then very clear uh, what this was and why it was pretty damn fantastic. Um, that's how I came to it. How about the rest of you? When did... Uh, assassins come into your lives? Well, for me, I, I, I think I was slightly unusual in that I listened to, I, I was a Sondheim fanatic from like as early as it's possible to be one. And I listened to assassins when I was probably in grade school or high, high school. And I, I, I had never experienced what the final uh, scene achieved, which was to actually make me understand a position that I never thought I could possibly understand, which is not to say that I wanted to go out and shoot people, but I, I suddenly, the logic of that final scene so twists you around that I found it completely stunning. I, I just, it was one of the early things that really hooked me into theater because it made me understand what theater is capable of doing. Um, and that notion of, of exploring another 
point of view to such a degree just captured me. And so ever since then, I was kind of um, obsessed with it and all these different, I mean, I love the score. I think there's always something to, to find a new in it. And then um, I actually didn't really see it on a stage until I was in college and I was actually studying abroad and then they were gonna do that roundabout revival. Um, and I was gonna miss it because I was studying abroad. So I told, sorry, uh, college but I lied and I said I had to go back early because my cousin was getting married which was also true um, but the reality was that I was not willing to miss that production so it's been something that's fascinated me um, throughout my life throughout my career um, as you mentioned I've written about it quite a bit my my dramaturgy grad school thesis was about assassins it's just something that I um, have really been captured by from the get-go and think a lot about especially now I, I came to it somewhat early as well. I, uh, in, when I was in high school and through uh, most of college, I was an intern at Music Theater International, uh, which is the secondary licensing company that handles all of uh, the Sondheim uh, library. And um, once uh, one of the breaks during school, I was home working in the accounting department and I was um, filling envelopes of royalty checks that were going out for the quarter. And they had a library, they had me in the library and there were you know, these CDs sort of of the shows in the, in the library. And I said, oh, well, this is great. I'll just start at the beginning and work my way through. Um, and so I had this on in the background as I'm folding envelopes and I'm like, wait a minute, what is this show called? Assassins? This music is, is sort of delightful. What, what is going on? I don't under, but it's about what? Mm -hmm. And I, and so I just I found myself completely confused by it because you you know you sort of think of the title and, and the subject matter and you sort of imagine, door, uh, you know storm and drang and you know but the fact that it that it was so delightful and 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 heartwarming, um, was discerning and so I, I sort of kept going back to it kept listening to it and and just becoming more and more fascinated not only by the brilliance of the writing. There's, there's no fat to it. It's so precise and clear and clean. The, the, the musical language that he uses puts you exactly in the time and place and, and you know that you know it. So it advances the storytelling in such a brilliant way. And then of course, that it, it asks difficult questions of, of the audience um, and, and gives voice to this group of people who we think we know um, but have, have not had a voice. And, and there's something brilliant to that. And, and yeah, and, and I, I sort of, I was just listening to the, the, you know, the opening number and the closing number a little bit, this idea that everybody has the right to be happy versus everyone having the right to pursue happiness. And it's something that I've been sort of thinking a lot about the past, the past couple of days, but yeah, that's sort of how I came to the piece. Johnny Booth was a headstrong fella Even he believed the things he said Some called him noble, some said yella What he was was off his head How could you do it, Johnny? Calling it a cause You left a legacy of butchery and treason We took eagerly And thought you'd get applause but traders just get jeers and booze, not visits to their graves. While Lincoln, who got mixed reviews, because of you, John, now gets only raves. Damn you, Johnny, you paved the way for other madmen to make us pay. Lots of madmen have had their say, but only for a day. Listen to the stories, hear it in the songs. Angry men don't write the rules and guns don't write the wrongs. Hurts a while, but soon the country's back where it belongs. And that's the truth, still and all. Damn!
Wow. Um, well, I actually came to the piece simply as an actor. Uh, I also found Sondheim when I was in high school and wore out the album of uh, Sunday in the Park with George. And then when I was in college, I was finishing in 93. And that summer, um, I was doing a summer show in Dayton, Ohio, where I went to college. And they had auditions for the Chicago premiere of Assassins, which was done at then Pegasus Players, directed by Victoria Bussert. And I, drew, I left my show on like a Sunday night and uh, or Sunday matinee, drove to Chicago, uh, got a call back, had to come back the following week after my show and had to call them on the road because there were no cell phones then and say, I'm running late. And they said, we'll wait for you. And I got cast as Cholgosh in the Chicago premiere alongside Will Chase and uh, who played the Balladeer and Scott Lowell uh, who played Booth. Um, and Jeff Still and, and some other uh, folks that have been friends of mine uh, since. And then I was able to do it again in 96 under Gary Griffin's direction up at Appletree, which Michael mentioned. So I've, I've had the pleasure of doing the show twice in the same role and uh, have experienced it uh, as an actor. And uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to key into what Jermaine said is for me as an actor living that experience, it, it really is giving that group of people who you think you know, but you don't, a voice. And it's very powerful to live in that as an actor. Um, and one of the most powerful moments of the play, and I remember doing this at Pegasus Players, and there was a night where, I kid you not, we did it for two people who sat in the front row. There's that moment at the end of the play where we're all lined up together and we all have our guns and we, point the guns directly at the audience, which is really awkward as an actor. It's just not something that you do. Whenever you choreograph a scene where there's a gun in it, you always make sure it's away from the audience. But this was a show that was trying to have a conflict with the audience and it was very powerful and I'll, I'll never forget it. Those what happened to those two people? <laughs> They've been in therapy ever since. Ever since. <laughs> you know, it, what was great was they just had, they were, they were older and they just were like smiling. They just had smiles on their face the whole time. So we couldn't really tell were they horrified, were they, it seemed that they were enjoying it though. So smiles on their face and pee in their yeah. pants. Yes. Um, I think it goes without saying that th this show uh, disproves any concerned that something isn't right to become a musical that there that there is any subject matter that that you can't uh find that can't find a, a musical voice um it, it strikes me that um you know the the origin of this was was something that's a a, a script that Sondheim had seen and uh, at, at uh, Stuart Ostro's, uh, one of his workshops and, and um, that he approached or at some point approached the writer who created, who wrote this play uh, about assassins and uh, asked if he could work, you know, make a musical of his, of his script. And he said, sure, I'd love to collaborate with you. And he said, I'm, you know, I'm not intending to do it with you. I have somebody else in, in mind, but um, do we, do you find that there is something uh, about this that um, leads you to to have a fascin get, get is there a fascination that we have with these types of characters that I mean you know do we like them do are we intended to like them what do we think there in terms of the overarching goal of what Sondheim and Weidman are going for are we hoping to are they hoping to, for us to sympathize with these people or what? I think you are to some degree. And then I think you also are supposed to recognize that, um, I think they play with that basically. I think they there are moments when you're supposed to feel very charmed by some of them, um, that they have justifiable uh, frustrations. Cholgosh clearly I think is the most sort of rational in terms of his uh, reasons. Um, even though it's not particularly based on a person. But um, I think part of the brilliance of the show is how they use that, that comedy in the sense of these are different people. They're all, 
they're not a unit. They're not a group in any way, shape or form. They all have a different reason. Some of these reasons are so weird and random, you know, and you have Zangara who's standing right next to all of these kind of normal people saying the very same thing, which is like, oh my God, the, the press is they're paying attention to me. I know, oh my, everyone's paying attention to me now. And it's like, he's not that different from them in that moment. And, you know, it, it, part of what's so interesting about this show to me is the complexity of that relationship. It's constantly doing this kind of push and pull for this ultimate point, which is to say that, you know, all of us in America, all of us who have grown up with this idea of the American dream, um, it's gonna manifest in very different ways, but some people are going to find that that cannot be true for them. And some people are going to realize that part of what they were promised can be achieved in this very dark uh, other way that they can be famous um, even if they can't be successful in the same way. And what is fame and success in that meaning? A gun kills many men before it's done. Hundreds long before you shoot the gun. Men in the mines and in the steel mills, men in machines who died for what? Something to buy, a watch, a shoe, a gun, a thing to make the bosses richer. But a gun claims many men before it's done. Just one. That's what I think is so interesting about it is that in some ways that the idea of the president and politics is is like completely not the point of this show at all. Mm -hmm. What it's really saying is like we have this loophole in the American dream and people are going to realize that when you've been told that this is the pinnacle that you can achieve and then told that you can't achieve it, they're going to find this back door, which will make them incredibly famous. You know, and and I think about I mean, that's why the show has, has been of interest to me this in my entire life, because every time there's a shooting in America, I think of assassins, because that's basically someone who has done what this show articulated in some way, you know, so it's it's, it's a little bit like it's shocking and it's and it's con con confrontational and all of these characters are so different in terms of the calibration of their rational thinking or their um, you know, pretty much everything in terms of where they stand on a level of sanity, where they stand on the level of, you know, Booth is in some ways the most seductive one of all of them. And he's just totally racist. You know, it's like they're, they're, there's sort of like the, every one of them has a complex portrait with good and bad that I think you're constantly uh, adjusting to. Damn my soul, if you must let my body turn to dust let it mingle with the ashes of the country let them curse me to hell leave it to history to tell what i did i did well and i did it for my country let them cry Dirty traitor, they will understand it later. The country is not what it was. Yeah, and I, you know, going back to your, your point, Michael, about, you know, anything can be musicalized. I think what's so great about the show is that it does it does leave that ambiguity the, that the, the, there's an ellipsis. It, 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 doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a point of view about these people or, or impose a, a morality on them. It, it just presents them as they are. And I think, I, I think that's what makes it so disarming to people. They, they, they want the show to have an opinion. They want to say these people are bad and that it doesn't, I think is what sets some people off from it. Uh, because we, we, we sort of want to have right and wrong, but the fact that the show doesn't do that, and that it yeah that it, it that it involves that there's comedy in it, that there's lightness in it, um, I think is what is is what makes it quite brilliant. And and I and I don't know that it would be that this material would be 
quite as successful in the hands of someone who isn't quite as genius and meticulous as, as Sondheim and, and Weidman. That's a great point. I think that, um, yes, I think it proves the point that anything can be musicalized. However, if you don't have the genius of Stephen Sondheim behind this musical and this idea, I don't think it's as successful. And I think the book too, um, you know, it does put all of these characters so at one point, many of them in one scene together and without judgment, uh, which I think is really, with the exception of the balladeer, maybe at times, um, depending on how they play it. But I think that it's, it's wonderful in the sense that you just get to see these people as just people and their causes, however crazy they may seem to others, mean uh, a lot to them and make sense to them. And the way it's presented in the show kind of makes sense to an audience. Right. And interesting that this particular piece in Sondheim's journey came not very long after his most artistically risky commercial show, perhaps in Sunday in the Park with George, a show that not that your boulevard New Yorker or tourist is not going to walk in and easily be able to just sit there and, and have wash over them. It really compelled them to participate and engage. And then right before this, his one of his most populous shows in Into the Woods, that he would not sail on the sort of success and kind of come back with something that was even more enchanting to all of us, but decides to take this turn and go, I'm gonna really make you feel uncomfortable. I'm gonna pick a subject matter here that is so absurd in just my describing it to you, a musical about the people who murdered our presidents. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is an a, a, a amazing, uh, bravery of in, in, in artistry that, that he's just going to keep going into these places and go, I, I, no, it won't, we're not going back to, you know, Little Night Music anytime soon. We're gonna keep it, you know, right here, right now. Um, the, uh, the, the production I saw that you did, Steph, was, uh, as we know, the journey of this particular show, there were additions and changes that came along. Annika, you might want to speak a little bit to that to clarify for us the kind of the journey the piece took. Um, the, the, the version I saw that you did, Steph, was the original, basically the off-Broadway version before additions or adjustments had been done. And I was so glad to see that because now I know the continued artistic journey that this has taken. Uh, wh where did, you know, Sondheim kept working on it? Tell us a little bit about that, Annika. Well, the two major things that shifted over the course of this show's history was, um, were, I should say, uh, the addition of Something Just Broke, um, which I, I believe was added in London, if I recall correctly, um, which was basically the perspective of people in uh, America after JFK was killed because I think that was a response to the idea that you never, you're, you're just with the assassins the entire time. You're never given this other point of view. Um, and that is still something that I think productions today wrestle with whether or not it's a good idea to include. I, I know there's, there's <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of something just broke debate on both sides. Um, and the other one is the choice that uh, they made in the revival, which had come up before, but they didn't do in the original Broadway version, which was to make the balladeer turn into Lee Harvey Oswald at the end of the show, um, which is something that I have very strong feelings around. <laughs> That's what I wrote my thesis about. So um, both of those things have, have larger implications, uh, certainly for the narrative of the show, what the show is ultimately saying. Um, how dark you want to take it um because i think if you make the balladeer turn into lee harvey oswald you're you're making your um your narrator character basically the voice of reason be won over by uh the assassins to become the kind of biggest monster of all because obviously for an audience even now jfk's assassination is something that's still emotional in a way that like the other assassinations are sort of pages from history um 
so that's that's something that I think uh, it really depends on where you want to take the show, how you want to take the show. I, I mean, I think it's a fascinating show too in that way that it's like, it's my favorite show of all shows and I don't necessarily think it's like finished in some ways, you know, it's like a kind of, there's some really odd, interesting things about it that I'm, I'm not sure all of them totally work. It doesn't feel like it's kind of like a complete perfect, like, aha, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, those are those are the primary things. And interestingly enough, like having a narrator character who gets kind of cannibalized into the text is something that Sondheim had done before with Into the Woods um, and Pacific Overtures as well. So that's that I if anyone wants to read a 50 page thesis about it, I happen to have one. It's brick. <laughs> and do you know who was driving that potential device? change was it Sondheim was it Weidman was it uh was it Joe Mantello who who uh I mean the choice of the balladeer and the right the, that one um you know I'm I, I when I was prepping for this I was like I should look at my own thesis because I know I got it wrong in my first draft and I think it was an idea that they had had earlier because I thought that it was Joe Mantello's idea, but apparently it was not only Joe Mantello's idea. It was something that existed before that, um, that he found out about and decided to put in. So I'm not really sure whose original plan that was, right. uh, but I do know that Joe Mantello is kind of the one who popularized it by having it in that revival. Musically, from, from what I went back and, and kind of uh, looked at sometimes, and I think it's a bit unfair, musically this show is sometimes considered to be weaker Sondheim. It's not considered to be his, his finest. And part of it, I think it's attributed to the amount of pastiche mm -hmm. that, is, that is in the show. Um, Jermaine, what are your thoughts on this in terms of, again, maybe looking at Sondheim coming from Sunday in the Park into, into the woods and then coming here? D does his, do you, do you think his trajectory stayed strong or was this a, a hiccup? Um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, think the, I think the brilliant use of the pastiche and the leaning into and borrowing from Sousa and 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 using Hail to the Chief as, as a waltz instead of a march. I think that creativity just de it demonstrates a different kind of brilliance, right? It's not it's it's using these materials that we know um, and incorporating them into the score in ways that the audience doesn't necessarily know that they're hearing, but they know that that thing is familiar. Um, you know, and you know, the idea of taking, you know, Hail to the Chief and putting it as a waltz, right? That from a march in an even two is a very steady thing. But when we're in three, four, there's an unevenness about that, right? The inherent nature of a waltz is that it doesn't quite complete the one, two, three, one, two, three. So you, that, that just, that, that, that demonstrates a kind of thought uh, and mastery of musical analysis and theory and how to, how to use musical language um, in thematic production that I think just displays another level of his thought and, and, and brilliance beyond a sort of original composition. We are in the shooting gallery and there's a calliope playing so that we get the atmosphere of a carnival. And um, the wall sounds like this. Da -da -da. absolutely straightforwardly like this. No nuance until near the end when it slows down. Now vamp starts. 
And in comes our first character, Leon Cholgosh. He's a worker, and he shuffles in very disconsolately. And the proprietor looks up and sings to him very cheerfully. Hey, pal, feeling blue, don't know what to do. Hey, pal, I mean you, yeah. Come here and kill a president. Now, that's meant to shock the audience. John and I decided that we must let the audience know right at the beginning of the show that we were going to have a good deal of black humor as well as much lighter humor that comes a little later. In fact, it comes right in this opening number. And that we were going to take uh, 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 various points of view and we're not going to treat it just on one level. So if there's nervous laughter in the audience, that's good. Or if there's shocked silence, that's good too. The point is that the audience will not fall asleep. They will sit up. And the fact that he uses sort of folk musics from all of these eras so brilliantly, the march, the cakewalk, um, unworthy of your love could be a radio tune sung by the Carpenters, right? Like the fact that it's, and it uses folk music, right? That it's the, the music of the people that they understand to tell the story of folks that haven't had a voice. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's incredibly um, smart, brilliant, cerebral, um, which may on its surface look simple, but I think actually displays uh, against another facet of the, of the genius and the artistry. Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, you used the word weaker. I actually was able to do the show with something just broke and without it. The original production that I did did not have it. And then when we did Gary's production at Apple Tree, we included that song. And I think that, and this is just the actor's perspective, but I think the, the first production that I did packed more of a punch without it. Um, and felt as though when I did it the second time that something just broke was doing a bit of the audience's job for them. Um, I felt like the ensemble was very present in the first production, which also included Jeff Richmond, um, Tina Fey's husband. Uh, he was part, he was an actor in the ensemble. And I, I remember the ensemble vividly from the first production. And I felt like they did have a voice. And I felt like the shift with something just broke just and you know, this is just also me, the actor used to one way, um, but I never was able to wrap my, my brain and heart and soul around that new version um, after delivering that knockout punch with the, uh, the first production. I agree with you. That's how I feel about something just broke too. I feel like it's a stronger piece without it. It feels to me a little bit like an apology in a way that I don't think we need because again, as you said, the audience is doing that work already. And I don't think you need to be reminded of, that an assassination is actually a really awful thing. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that that was something because it appeared in the London production? And I think of things like the original London production of 1776, you know, to go, there's a very different audience perspective coming to this show. Do you think that it was something that was felt was needed in assassins for London for a London audience to be able to somehow sit with the show by providing one moment of, of comfort or a bomb of some way, as opposed to the brutality of it? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I, it might be that their, you know, a London audience isn't gonna have the emotional, uh, like it's not gonna be so fresh emotionally for them. So it's easy for them to be theoretical about it in a way that an American audience could not. I, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wonder if the relationship to gun violence is just different there. You know, like we, I'm probably not gonna finish that sentence, but um, <laughs> um, because of where we are and where we live, right? Gun violence is, is, is part of our, our, our narrative, but there, because it isn't, I wonder if adding that, that moment that, so that, is, that, that is universal, that, that assassination that is universal would somehow connect them to the piece in a way that without it, they wouldn't necessarily be as, 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 as looped in. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And anytime a show has that where, where there are options, you know, there are certain 
musicals, I mean, certainly you can do it anytime with Shakespeare, but there are certain musicals like Cabaret that have optional versions. And, and I find it so interesting to watch how a show has evolved. And at some point, the writers felt there needs to be an adjustment inserted for a purpose. Um, and now you have an option of how to do it. That's really the reaction probably to something. Um, Steph, I want to stay with uh, you in terms of your actor's perspective with the show to um, tell us a little bit about how, what was your approach to playing not only an historical character like this, one who probably did not have a lot written about him that you could do too much research on, but also one that, that was, that a show that's all about their individual psyche. Um, do you recall your, your journey or how it affected you walking into the second production, knowing what you then knew? That's a really great question. And, um, you know, it was, it was a long time ago. Sure. Um, but I would say that knowing that I was playing somebody historical um, and I've played historical figures, whether it's Newt Rockney or other people in my life, I take, it's a tremendous responsibility that I feel like I have to get it right and find as much information as I can on that person and bring that to the portrayal. So I tried to do as much research as I could, but then, you know, you've got a scene with him and Emma Goldman, which to me is, you know, uh, was always my favorite scene and maybe his favorite, my, his best scene in the play, and which is totally fictitious. So, you know, you can get the spirit of the man and um, then you walk through um, Sondheim's web and try to deliver it. And I think I go back to what Jermaine said, you know, you, you're giving a voice to someone who had something to say, even if uh, it led to this awful act, his passion and his desire to be heard, um, which we've seen in the last four years with a lot of people for a lot of reasons uh, is valid. And I think that's what I tried to latch onto as I delivered the show. It's funny, that reminds me of something that I, I think is so interesting about this show. Having now read it a billion times, like I think, I, and I always mean to go through and actually count how many times this word appears in that show, mm -hmm. but I would guess that the word that appears more than any other word in Assassins is connect. So I, I think exactly what you're saying is like, there's there's such a, a lesson in terms of just, you know, be like, I don't connecting to your fellow human beings, understanding who all of these people are, not sort of um, separating them out into the the in and the out and the sane and the insane and the bad and the good. It's just always been so interesting. And one last point that I wanted to bring up because you brought up, you know, uh, tying it to sort of mass shootings and that culture that we now have in America. Um, I think there's a difference because I think shooting a president and what the president represents to this country and the history of that office, this these last four years aside, um, there's a there's a sense in a weird way, if you if I'm Cholgash, of bravery with that decision, as opposed to cowardice, and I think that that is something that, as an actor, I tried to dig into. Even though I, Steph Tovar, go that's insane. I would never think of doing that, and I think that anyone who does that should be prosecuted. I look at it and go, no, you have to be braver than just, you know, killing someone who's a burglar. It's, it's, it's what that office represents. And that to me, um, especially because that scene where Chilgosh kills McKinley is played out on stage, uh, is something that I had to dig my heels into and repeat every night and talk myself through um, as to the justification of that action. It's such a, a, a important part of this show in terms of as we sit there and scrutinize these characters, what, what occurs to me, what you made me think of Steph was how uh, Booth is wrestling with the fact that he wants to be compared to Brutus and be looked at why, why aren't I being, why am they responding to me so? opposite of what I imagined this was going to be. Mm -hmm. This just seemed so obvious that, uh, yeah, and, and of course, you know, it, it, is, it, is it the actor's 
insanity of, of confusing himself with the roles he's playing or just something, but, but that is part of it is really going your, which again, takes us back to today, you're literally seeing a different reality, an alternate reality, an alternate American dream. Well, and I think it's some, some really fascinating points too. I mean, the line in, in the Ballad of Booth at the end that the balladeer says about, and Lincoln who got mixed reviews because of you, John now, now gets only raves, <laughs> you know? That there's, it's so, there's so many little pieces in there where it's like, you know, it, I, don't, I don't mean to throw my mom under the bus, but she's not a fan of the current administration, well, <laughs> the ex-current administration. And every time she would be like, rah, rah, I would say no 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 you, you'd have to understand that like this is this is a true thing that you know you you, you this will turn the the tide of opinion in a way like you you create a martyr in the way that Booth obviously didn't um understand now now I just feel like I'm gonna get a text from my mom being like why did you <laughs> And if I'm bring me up. Doesn't, doesn't Zangara also talk sing about you know why there are no photographers? Yeah. Right. Why 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 are people not taking pictures of me at this yeah. moment? Yeah. He says only capitalists get photographers. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Not I. I another national anthem as well. What is mm -hmm. that? Mm. But that, that's the thing I think that is truly, and, and Annika, you said it earlier, I mean, and, and we come back to that. It's really sort of, it is a cautionary tale. Mm. It is a warning of all our children that are out there. And we're right back where we're dealing with it today. All our children, as we are as divided as we were in that first scene with Booth, our country again is as divided, but inevitably, yes, something happened today on November 7th, but now we've got four more years that we need to figure out a way to acknowledge all our children. And, and how, how do you approach that? And, and what if there is enormous resistance to that? To the, to, to the hand being put out to say, let's join together. Um, yeah, and I had a crazy thought the other day where I was thinking about talking with you all about, about this show. And I was like, you know, the, the idea of another, another national an anthem and these, these singular disenfranchised people who come together as this group in the last scene in that surreal way. And I was like, we're in a very strange time because in some ways I feel like you look at what's happened with QAnon and in some ways, there's this kind of large, like like the group of people who are QAnon followers in America and the group of people who are assassins and assassins do not feel like they are not, are that far from each other in some way. You know, there's this kind of strange sense of like, we are, we are aware of a different America and this is what we're realizing. I don't know, it's a very like weird malformed, I've been, you know, in a stressful, strange, weak thought, but I was like, Hmm, I wonder if there's something there. <laughs> well, it, it certainly takes you to the scene with uh, between uh, uh, Booth and um, uh, Oswald at the end that you have someone who is, who is in distress, who is confused, who feels weak and not heard and the right voice at the right moment whispering in that person's ear no matter how insane what they're saying is, but it may, it brings them comfort and it, and it and it joins them to a group. Come join our group. It is very easy to to impress a mind, and then put a gun in their hand, yeah, or a torch in their a tiki torch in their hand or whatever. Yeah, and the line about uh, "I'll be hated, but I'll, you'll be hated with a passion." Imagine anyone feeling passionate about Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, there's, there's so many lines that just, I mean, that show is just, just, it's just right. like one after another, like, wow, my mind is blown by this. I have to think about it. Right. Oh, it's just so rich. I think of where we are now, even just since the last Broadway production of this show, let alone the original um, production off Broadway and the there there are some thought that the the start of or the 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 action that was happening in the Persian Gulf 
affected the audience's potential appetite for a show that might be deemed unpatriotic at that moment. And then the Broadway, the intended Broadway revival was postponed significantly for similar reasons after 9-11. Do we think that had they just opened, what do we imagine, had they just opened, was that actually valid? Were those concerns valid? Or was that just literally producers being extra super careful with their money? how they were going to spend their money, go, yeah, I don't want to take a chance. In terms of producing theater and saying something that needs to be said. I think they're being careful with their money, frankly. Um, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot at stake when, uh, you know, it, there's money on the line. And, you know, if you got to make a dicey call and there's millions of dollars involved, you're you know, it, it, it could be the same thing that you were talking about with adding something just broke into the UK production. Maybe this audience needs this, so we should add it in because if we don't, they're not going to be able to handle this evening of theater. So let's make an adjustment. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's an interesting question for the writers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just to, you know, to yes and that, I think, I guess my question would be, you know the, the 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 show the the piece asks difficult questions. So when is the right time to ask those difficult questions? Like wh wh when is the time where we're all going to be like, okay, everything else is figured out. Now let's uh now let's talk about gun violence, right? Like when is when is the right time? Is what I guess I would ask any producing company. Uh, it, it, there's always going to be uh, a a portion of the audience that's going to react negatively to it because it asks difficult questions to a to a, a citizenry that sometimes doesn't like to be asked difficult questions um and so i think it's the responsibility of those producing agents to do the to do the piece uh, because it's a story that needs to be produced and questions that the audience needs to ask itself um and perhaps in that in that in that paradigm you know money be damned yeah although i do understand that there are times where you just don't want to think about that for the moment, you know? I mean, it's funny. I will talk about assassins all the time. I will talk happily about it. And today when there was just such joy on the streets about this very hopeful thing, I had this moment of like, oh, you know, I just want to surround myself with happy, promising that you know and watch the American president and and like revel in that part of America that feels like a celebration of hope as opposed to this uh you know this show which very much says that America is is has like a has a real flaw built into its DNA and we have to look at it because the country is broken down to its core on some level you know I mean it's it's funny I always think of the line from you're in town at the end when um I think officer Lockstock says to Sally about you know, what's the matter? You don't think people want to be told their way of life is unsustainable. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's just times occasionally where it's like, well, there's there's times where people definitely don't want to be told their way of life is unsustainable for a few months or a year or so. Mm -hmm. um, Even the other day when, I think it was maybe two days ago when they sort of, when it looked like the election mm -hmm. was going a certain way and they were like, oh, well, you know, now there's this, uh, the Secret Service perimeter around Biden's house in Delaware. So it's like, mm. as soon as you step into that role, that kind of heightened security immediately becomes nece becomes necessary. And so in, in some ways, yeah, continuing those conversations, even in times of, of joy, I mean, that that is still, that danger is still sort of lurking there. Uh, oh, for just, sure. Yeah. And you're and you're and it needs to be addressed. I mean, yeah. even when we're all happy and hopeful, and it feels like some things are working better, this is still not working <laughs> you know, like what assassins articulates will never really be fixed because it's built into the fabric of our country in a way so um in some ways you're right we we have to continue having that conversation because it's going to continue happening and i i agree with both of you uh and jermaine you, you know your point what you know when is a good time to ask these questions i think sure we as artists we can say Yes, now is the time to ask these questions. It's important, you know, and the director and the even the writers. That's why I want to, you know, I wonder what the writers think. But if I'm a producer, 
and someone says to me, money be damned, well, you're not the one writing the check. So, you know, if it's my money on the line and I'm the producer, then I, you know, you take the art out of it and you go, well, there's a million dollars down the drain. Um, then it's a different conversation. I think we all can say, uh, the four of us, yes, money be damned. We need to be asking these questions right now. These last four years would have been the perfect time to do this musical. It need, these questions are hard questions that need to be talked about all the time, but who's writing the check, you know? Right. It, um, it, it, it wasn't lost on me. Um, you know, we were intending before uh, the pandemic, uh, um, seven, uh, uh, Assassins was on our, our slate this year that we, we would have done before the election. And um, last year in on our revisit slot as well, we had done a sort of a modern dress production of 1776 that certainly gave, you know, a nod to Trump and Trumpism within the, the production of the show. And we heard about it from audience members who absolutely did not appreciate him being satirized. And then around the time that we had booked Assassins was when there was that production of Julius Caesar going on in New York in the park in which Caesar was portrayed as Trump. And of course, we know what happens to Caesar. And there was picketing and outrage or inciting your, your calling for the assassination of the president. And they're just going, no, we're making a, a parallel. It's drama, it's a connection. But there's definite truth. There is an audience base out there who rejects and resents the idea of the audacity of anything having to do with it. And this goes back obviously to Shakespeare, you know. Um, Can I tell a funny story about that? Um, after that Julius Caesar was happening, uh, what had happened, the, the Encore's production of Assassins happened only a few weeks, a few months after. And so I think everybody was on high alert for exactly what you were talking about. Are, were they gonna pick it up? What was gonna happen? Simply follow through and look Your little finger can Slow them down to a crawl Show them up Big and small It took a little finger no time I went to see uh, the show at Encores and I my heart stopped because I was in the lobby and I saw someone in a red baseball cap and I thought, oh my God, here we go. And then they turned around and it said, hello, Dolly. And I was like, oh, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is a safe space apparently, so. Um, I wish all those hats were hello, Dolly hats. <laughs> I mean, Yes, I was. A, it was a. The, I was so happy to see that Hello Dolly. Yes. <laughs> but it is funny too because I do think that you know, the show is not giving the message certainly of you know go out and assassinate anyone in the way that I think people might assume it. But I think often you know all you need really is the title and the basic framework and the people who like to protest that stuff. That's mm -hmm. fine. You know, there's so many pieces of art that people protest and you go, have you read it? Have you seen it? Do you know what mm -hmm. we're talking about here? And it's like, no, I don't need to. It's terrible. It's, you know, it's sexualizing children or whatever, whatever that yeah. argument is. It's like, it only gets as far as um, a very surfacey place. So yeah, I can understand why. Although I also think it's interesting that, you know, Classic Stage Company was about to do it before COVID, that Encores mm -hmm. did it. It's been, it's, it's definitely bubbling up in the zeitgeist in the past four years in a way that I think it's on people's minds for the political who are we as a country reasons rather than necessarily the, um, you know, Trump reasons. Mm -hmm. I love your beads. <laughs> My was your beads. I must have spent an hour on Hate Street trying to find a string of beads like that. All I found were these. The salesman told me they were groovy, but I don't think they're groovy. I think yours are groovy. In fact, I think they're psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
What's so funny? Groovy, psychedelic. <laughs> the way you talk, you sound just like a narc. Well, I am a narc. What? I mean, I was. They fired me. Who fired you? The FBI. You worked for the FBI? Right before I was a CPA. No, wait. Right after. Who was my husband then? Jack? No. Jack was when I had amnesia. You had amnesia? You're kidding me, I did. It's a joke. See, it's like if I had amnesia, then I couldn't remember anything, including that I had amnesia. Are you making this stuff up? I don't know. Do you think in terms of producing it today that it holds any different nuance to its message given where we are and what we've just gone through and how we have peeled back the rocks and seen, you know, what's under the rocks of America within the last four years? Does it, has it evolved in terms of its message? Is it as powerful as it once was? I think it's always powerful um, because the questions it asks are always real. I think why it would be an interesting thing right now is because the country feels like it's in a very odd place in terms of who is mainstream, who is the, you know, who is in power truly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that is where it would kind of take on a very interesting, odd element because we do have people who are the very much the majority who feel like they are being persecuted as a minority and that's kind of an odd unusual thing you know so I think that that idea might be what is taking an odd shape here in terms mm -hmm. of the notion of who is disenfranchised in the same way mm -hmm. um maybe you know like I think someone like Bick might be seen slightly differently than now than we might see him a few years ago because you're seeing a lot of angry white guys who feel like they should have more power and it means something slightly different now than I think it did then, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I think would be an interesting thing. Hello, Mr. Bernstein, Lenny. How you doing? My name is Sam Bick. We've never met. You're a world-renowned composer and conductor who travels the world over enjoying one success after another. And I'm an out-of-work tire salesman, so I guess that's not surprising. <laughs> but I hope you'll take a few minutes out of your busy schedule to listen to this tape, which you just opened in the mail. And if you can't listen to it now, maybe you could listen to it Tonight, tonight. <laughs> I love that song! I would love it if someday the show was not relevant, but I don't, I honestly think, you know, this is America in some way. I think it's one of the, one of the most important pieces that reflects America back at herself. And so I think that's always gonna be true. I am unworthy of your As we said earlier, you know, one of the central conceits of the show that that really is sort of this talisman that floats out there is the idea of an American dream, the American dream, an American dream. That's, I think, a component about it that I, I wonder, does our population still imagine that there is such a thing or are we now reinventing just that to that we're we've wrestled with that 
bill of goods that was sold that has been sold and has usually been, you know, this final word on certain subjects. Well, you know, you got to go for the American dream to say whether, you know, people go, well, does anybody really believe in that anymore? In, in the classic sense of the word or the phrase, I should say. Yeah, that's, that's a tough question. And it, and it completely depends on who you ask. But I think if you look at this year in particular, you know, with 250,000 almost dead and, you know, all of the protests and um, sort of the ugliness of who America really is came into play this year and we need to rebuild and start over in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, if you ask me that question as, you know, a white male American living in Chicago who's an actor and who has done assassins a couple of times, I'd say, no, I, I think that notion of the American dream doesn't exist anymore, but that's my two cents. And I think it depends on where you ask in the country and who you ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, I mean, it's funny because I do think that the American dream as it's reflected in the show is in itself complicated because um, it's, it is slightly different for a lot of those guys in terms of whether it's about, you know, having the money to support yourself or having people pay attention to you. Um, so in some ways, I think it's actually more, the American dream has become more relevant in the way that they talk about now that we're in a world where social media and this kind of idea of like constant attention and who gets this attention, who gets to be an influencer, who gets to be, um, someone who has that kind of power, um, which obviously the show was written well before social media. And I would not really, I'm not advocating for someone to do a production, which is like all on cell phones, but um, you know, but like that, that, that's seeded into it in a way about um, who gets the, the attention of the country, who gets the attention of their fellow people. Um, yeah. I, so, so in that way, I think, there is a sort of American dream that's a little bit older fashioned in terms of like the streets are paved with gold and, and you can go from rags to riches. But uh, I think the American dream that we understand is that notion of you can come from the bottom and rise to the top. Um, and I think, I think that's certainly true in America um, always, you know, that sense of you can just make it if you work harder, um, which is I think something that has been consistently proven to not be as simple as we'd like to believe. Um, so I think that's still alive and well, but yeah, I think it's, it's complicated in the show and outside of it as well. Right. And maybe that's the thing is that, is that the show is actually revealing as the years have gone on with the show, that when you produce it, there is that fault that is being revealed even more and more that in 1990, they kind of still were kind of going, yeah, but the American dream, right? That whole thing, whereas now we're going, even that wasn't ever true for anybody and especially not true for some people. Um, and of course the ridiculous irony here is that all of the antagonists in this show are for the most part, white people and predominantly white men. Mm -hmm. um, it will be very interesting to see the future of this show, to see how, how it continues on. I like to uh, conclude these conversations and, and, and this one seems like it requires another hour, my friends, <laughs> but I promised you one hour, so we'll wrap it up. Um, I, like to, I like to come back with, uh, if, if you knew somebody who was going to see tonight a production of Assassins and they've never seen Assassins, your reaction to that or your what you would leave them with, oh, you're gonna see assassins. Here's what you're about to experience. <laughs> would be what? What would you tell them? 
before this before going to see yeah i'm going to see what are you doing tonight i've got tickets to assassins oh that show here's what you what can i expect jermaine when i go see this what is this never don't know anything about it i i would probably say um for, for, to the best of your ability suspend uh any prejudice uh, suspend any uh, preconceived notions. Sit, listen, and experience. Mm -hmm. Annika? I mean, the thing that comes to mind is uh, buckle up, really, you know? Um, I, I love what Jermaine said. I think that's totally right. I think I would just tell someone, you know, enjoy and then to call me tomorrow because I will probably talk to them about it for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Maybe don't call me tomorrow if they're not ready for that. <laughs> I think as I've proven, I can talk about assassins a whole lot. But yeah, I think I would just say, you know, get ready and open your mind and just, you know, I mean, I have, I have brought people to assassins for the first time, people who have sort of dismissed musicals as something that was, you know, jazz hands and silliness. And so I've, I've had that conversation. Sure. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever remember, I forget the look on my college boyfriend's face when the, the sack of body fell after uh, Guiteau's cakewalk being like, I don't think he was uh, expecting musical theater to go that place. <laughs> but yeah, I think just, you know, be prepared for a, a really brilliant, complicated piece of theater that's gonna ask questions that you're probably gonna be thinking of for the rest of your life. Uh, exactly, I'd say the same thing. I'd say buckle up and get ready for a ride. I might also say, pretend it's November 6th, not November 7th and that's see how the show sits with you then, because I think you, you know, I think today we're all feeling a, a sense of hope and a and, and a different look to how the world, you know, we see the world as opposed to how we saw it yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I want to come back with the three of you a year from now after we know even more and see how this production reflects our world and continues to be profound in its way. Thank you so much for joining me today, the three of you. I so enjoyed the conversation and love learning your perspectives on the show. I really appreciate it. Have a thank great you. day and celebrate today. Thank yes, you. my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.